We'll start tonight like we have every night this semester. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to verse 10. The Bible says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So We're thinking about this phrase right in the middle of that paragraph, train yourself for godliness. Paul calling Timothy, pastor in Ephesus, to train himself for godliness so that he can lead his church in training themselves for godliness. And we're trying to steer clear of two errors. The one error we've termed legalism, and that's the idea that we would train for godliness as a means of earning our way with God or securing a place in heaven. We don't want to be legalist. We don't want to approach training for godliness as if we're earning our way with God. We also don't want to be lazy. And both of these temptations are present in the United States. Both of these temptations are present in churches in the United States. The tendency to think that we're doing things to make ourselves better and that when we make ourselves better, God will love us more. That's legalism. We want to be clear that God's grace comes to us as sinful people before we clean ourselves up and before we start to pursue godliness and train for godliness. The flip is, we don't want to be lazy. And many people make the mistake of just assuming, well, God's grace is the thing that saves us, and so we don't really need to worry about anything else. We just trust in Jesus, and someday we'll go to heaven when we die. And there's not any intentionality to train. And what Paul's calling Timothy to do is to be very intentional in training himself for godliness. So if we're going to train for godliness, we have to know what godliness is. And the way that we've been thinking about godliness is by using Jerry Bridges' definition of ungodliness, where he talks in respectable sins and says, ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of his will or of his glory or of your dependence on God. And if we're going to be godly people, we want to live our lives actually thinking about God. Experiencing a relationship with God. Giving attention to what is God's will for our lives. Thinking about God's glory, even in the most mundane of situations, whether we eat or whether we drink, we want to do all things for God's glory. And living with the acknowledgement that we're dependent on God for life, for health, for wisdom, for salvation, for everything. We are dependent people and we're people who want to seek God's glory. So that's our, our operating definition of godliness. So this semester has been a 12-week training regimen for training. How do we train? Bodily training is of some value. You can do the bench press. You can run marathons. You can swim in the pool. You can do all sorts of things. How do you train for godliness? The things that we've talked about on Wednesday nights are purity, friendship, prayer, worship, integrity, the tongue, work, perseverance, church, last week leadership, tonight giving, and next week being a witness. 
Now, one of the things I share with you from time to time is that as a pastor who has two seminary degrees, underneath those, I have an accounting degree. And I have a a low-grade sense of whenever I can use it, I feel like I ought to use it and not let it go completely to waste. So we just went through the budget process with the finance team and uh, the staff, and I feel like I got to use a little bit of my accounting skills and thinking about the budget and planning for the next year. So I want to talk to you about some uh, numbers tonight, numbers that I find interesting. You may or may not find them interesting, but I want to talk to you about charitable giving statistics in the United States of America for the year 2022. Obviously, we don't have them for this year. This year's not complete, so these are numbers from last year. Last year, 2022, Americans gave all charitable giving $499.38 billion, with a B, dollars. It's half a trillion dollars in charitable giving. It's actually a 3.4% decline from the previous year. So we gave more money, 3.5% more in 2021. And when you read the surveys and the studies, most people say the reasons the giving is down is inflation. I don't know if you've heard of inflation in the last couple years, but there's a thing in the world called inflation. It's how the government steals your money. Uh, I won't get, I'll get off that soapbox. Moving on. Inflation, uh, wages not going up, and stock markets being down. And stock markets being down has a big impact on the grand total of charitable giving. So those are the big 30,000-foot numbers. Where did that giving come from? Who did that giving? This is interesting. $319 billion from people, individuals. The biggest part came from people giving their money away. No one forced them to do this. Talking about Americans, 2022, 319 billion people gave away. 105 billion from foundations. And you understand the stock markets going down has a big impact on what foundations can give because their money's often in the market and they're giving off what they make. And so if they make less, they give less. Uh, give less. 45 billion uh, from bequest or inheritance being passed down in a will, not just to your kids or your grandkids, but to some church or organization or school or whatever. 45 billion there. And 21 billion from corporations. So that's who did the giving. Who did they give it to? Who got all this money? We got the biggest piece. 27% went to religious organizations, not just churches, but religious organizations. As we go through these percentages, you'll probably detect there could be some overlap or you could move certain organizations from one spot to another. But 27% to religious groups, 14% to human services. Obviously, there are religious groups who help perform human services, and so there's some gray area there. 13% to education. 11% to foundations. You understand that 11% ends up kind of cyclical giving because you give it to a foundation and the foundation is going to end up giving it later or at least the money they make off your gift. 10% to health and then 25% to a large number of other things. One last category from these numbers, as I read through a couple of the studies, these numbers are pretty consistent. This is an interesting breakdown 
for individuals. Okay, we've looked at the macro level. Let's think about the micro level just for a second. Individual Americans. The average American, depending on the study you're looking at, gives between 2 and 5% of their income in a given year. So that's the average among individual Americans. But I want you to understand that number is worthless as a statistic. It is completely, completely of no value for thinking about charitable giving because 30 to 40% of Americans gave nada. So the average is way skewed where you have a third to almost a half who gave nothing. Then you understand the average is being... Uh, pulled down by that group or being pulled up by the other group who gave. The average American in the course of a year, you add up all their charitable giving, it comes out to between 500 bucks and 1000 bucks a year. So this is what I want you to see. Not so much the individual numbers, although I think those are interesting. Philanthropy and giving is big business in America. That's what Americans do with everything, by the way. We turn it into business. We are just money people, money-crazed people. So even giving away money becomes a big business. Example of that is, I can show you my email inbox every week, and I get unsolicited emails as a pastor from companies, businesses, organizations who want to help us as a church raise more money. And you understand they're not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. They charge a modest fee for their services to say, we can help you get your offerings up. We can help you with a capital campaign. We can help you raise more money. We're the experts. We know how to do this. They're more than happy to come in and to help us increase our giving for a price. Uh, Anecdotally, as a pastor, when I talk to people, who attend church, but not this church, okay? Christian people, they go to a church, but they don't attend this church. One of the most common things they say to me is, I am so sick and tired of my church begging for my money. That's all they talk about. That's all they talk about. Now, here's the interesting thing. My church members have never said that to me. So maybe you're saying it to other pastors. (laughs) Maybe you're going to lunch with someone else and saying, this guy is the worst. He stands up every Wednesday night and he says, Operation Christmas Child, and uh, we're giving food to our neighbors, and we're taking a world mission. He never stops. He just drones on and on and on and on about all this giving. People tell me this all the time, how they are so sick and tired of going to church and getting hit up for money. That's the only thing that they hear. You know what else is interesting anecdotally? I not only have conversations with people who attend other churches, but from time to time, believe it or not, I have conversations with pastors of other churches. And with great regularity, these pastors tell me, my people are not very good at giving. They don't give like I think they should, budget's tight, the offering's this, whatever, whatever, and they're discouraged and they're frustrated. And this is an interesting dynamic for me to try to process and to step back and to think, okay, I've been a pastor now for 17 years. I've pastored three churches for a grand total of about 17 years. One, 
a very, very blue-collar rural church in Kentucky to a remarkably wealthy First Baptist church in a small town in Oklahoma and Emmanuel. And I don't feel like at any of those churches I have browbeat people when it comes to giving and we need you to give, we're behind, whatever. I feel like in each of those churches, very different churches, different size, different demographics, different parts of the country, that the people in my churches have been super faithful to give and to support the work that was being done in our church. And I particularly feel that about Emmanuel. So we've just gone through the budget process. One of the things we do is we look back at giving over the last five, ten years or so, and what has been given, and how have we spent it, and what's the economy doing, and what are we thinking for next year, and we try to factor in some of these things to our planning for a budget proposal to put in front of you. And I'm just blown away time and time again at the giving that you guys do as a church. And I'm not just trying to puff you up, make you feel like you're the special Wednesday night people, although you are the special Wednesday night people. I'm legitimately saying this is a church that is faithful in giving. And yet tonight, we're going to talk about giving. Giving. So I want you to hear from the outset my encouragement to you as at least a Wednesday night subset of our church to say, I think our church is faithful and generous and consistent and eager when it comes to giving. Those are all good things. And I think it's good for us to talk about giving because there's a danger when you find yourself in a church where giving is just consistent and almost automatic. And in some ways, I feel like that's our church, super faithful to give. There's a danger and that because it's good, we don't ever talk about it. And if we don't ever talk about it, we assume that everyone understands the biblical ideas about giving and how that plays into our training for godliness. And you know what? The fact of the matter is, folks in this room, you might be good on this issue, meaning you understand it, you're seeking to train in this area. But we also have college kids who are going to grow up, and before long they're going to have jobs, and they're going to be part of this church, and we're going to have some people, older generations, who die. We're going to have younger generations coming up, and we want them to hear about it. The college group's talking about it tonight. And guess what? Upstairs in the youth group, they're going to talk about it. They're going to talk about giving. You know how much money teenagers give to a church? Not much. Not much. But they need to hear about it, and they need to think about it, and they need to have their minds shaped and understand the things that we're talking about tonight just like we do. It's also true that even if you look at a church just across the board and you say, hey, as a whole, as a group, this is something that we seem to understand and we seem to be consistent in, what's true of the entire group or the group as an aggregate may not be true of all of the individuals within that church. And so there may be things that you need to hear tonight, maybe things you need to be reminded of tonight. Just like we've done every week, before we get to the training part, how do we train, I want to take just a minute and think about why. Why is this something that we ought to train for? How does this connect with godliness? So to connect giving to godliness, we're going to filter this through a Trinitarian gospel lens. And we're going to think about who God is in his character. We're going to think about sin 
the nature of sin and how it relates to this question of giving. We're going to think about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. We're going to think about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit connects to this idea of giving. What do we learn about giving from the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives? And then we'll get to the how. How do we actually train? So first, the why, and we'll start with the character of God. In the beginning, God gave human beings, are you ready for this list? Dignity, life, marriage, family, dominion, vocation, and blessing. Honest confession, on my original handout, the blank was the word gave. One word. But I really want you to think about, by writing these things in, the amazing collection of things that God gave to people in the beginning. Not just that He gave us a thing or two, but that He gave us quite a bit in the beginning. And in thinking about this list, you need to understand None of these things are ours by right. None of them. We're the creature. God's the creator. God was not obligated to give any of these things to his people. But in his kindness, he gave us these things. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good list. He gave us dignity. How so? We created us in his image. We bear God's image. Created to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. God spoke to the people that He created in His image and He entered into a real relationship with them. He gave us life. You read about God forming Adam from the dust of the ground and breathing into Him, spiriting into Him so that He became a living being. The first thing in the Bible that is not good doesn't actually show up in Genesis 3 in the fall. It actually shows up in Genesis 2 before their sin. God looks at Adam alone and he says, it's not good that man's alone. He needs a helper fit for him. So he gave him a helper and he gave him the gift of marriage. And within that gift of marriage, as a man and a woman came together, God also gave them the gift of family. To say, this is how it's going to work. A man and a woman are going to come together and the two are going to become one. And when they come together in the most intimate ways, there's going to be family. He gave them dominion. He put them in charge of everything that he had created. He gave them vocation. We've talked about work, right? It's not a negative thing that we have to work. It's actually a good thing that we get to work. We get to be like God in that sense. And we talked when we looked at God giving us work. We talked about work with our hands, keeping the garden. And we talked about work with our minds in naming the animals. And we talked about work in our homes and our families. God gave us all kinds of work, vocation. He gave his blessing to his people. Anything that we say tonight about what we might give back to God has to be framed under this umbrella that God gave us everything we have. And that anything that we give back to Him was not ours by right, but it's only something that He gave us in the first place. God gave first. Along with that, God lacks nothing, and He doesn't need us to give Him anything. 
He lacks nothing. He doesn't need us to give him anything. I just want to read these verses that I listed here for you. Psalm 50. This is a psalm of Asaph. I'll read verse 7 down to verse 15. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. You bring a beast, sacrifice it, you're bringing to God what is already God's. That's what Asaph was saying to the people. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry. He's not hungry. But if he was, this is a thought experiment. It's God giving a thought experiment through Asaph to the people. If I was hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God doesn't need anything from his people. He calls them to worship and to glorify Him. He calls them to ask Him for help, and He says that He'll give the help. But He doesn't need anything from them. You see the same thing in the book of Acts, chapter 17. This is Paul preaching in Athens. Acts 17, verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What Therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives. What does he give? He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't live in your temples, he doesn't need you to serve him with your hands. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He's the one who gives life and breath and everything to his people. So that's the character of God as we're thinking about giving. Now let's think about sin. Two things that you need to reckon with here. Number one, greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Colossians 3 If you read it in the ESV, it says covetousness is idolatry. Most English translations use the word greed. Wanting money, loving money, seeking comfort and security in money, putting your hope in money is, according to Paul, to the church in Colossae, it's idolatry. It's not worshiping at a statue of Zeus or Artemis or Baal or Asherah, but it's idolatry all the same. 
worshiping a false god. Paul didn't invent that. Jesus said that in Matthew 6. He said, look, you can't serve God and money. You can only serve one. And if you serve the one, you're going to not serve the other. You're going to hate the other. But if you love the one, you're not going to serve the other. It's one or the other. And you will serve one or the other. God or some non-God. Let's read this verse in 1 Timothy, just because it gets misquoted many times. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's actually in a paragraph about false teachers, but we'll just jump in right in the middle. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Godliness with contentment, godliness, that's what we're talking about, training for godliness. Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, does that describe anyone in the United States? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. File that word away. We're going to talk about it on Sunday. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Does he say money is the root of all evil? Don't quote him saying that. That's not what he says. Does he say loving money is the root of all evil? Not exactly. He says the love of money, covetousness, Greed, the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. That one sin in your life will never stay contained as one sin. It will always branch off into other sins. He just said that right above. It comes with many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Isn't that what Jesus said? You can serve God or money, but you can't serve both. And many people have wandered away from the faith, from putting their trust in Jesus Christ, from knowing the one true God. They've wandered away from that because deep down in their heart, they had a love of money. Greed is idolatry. Second, rather than embracing the biblical concept of stewardship, we haven't talked about that yet, but we're going to come to it. Human beings try to take from God and keep from God. That's our nature apart from God's grace, is to take from Him and to keep from Him. So we're not going to look these up, but we'll just mention them quickly. Go back and read Genesis 3, the story of Eve and the serpent and the temptation in the garden. You'll notice that the story in Genesis says that she saw the fruit of the tree was desirable And she took it. It was not hers to take. She took it. It was desired. She took it. If you fast forward to the book of Joshua, you read about a man named Achan. Remember the story of Achan? If you read it in the original Hebrew, 
It's the exact same words that you read in the Garden of Eden. Achan saw the gold and the cloaks and the things that he was supposed to destroy. He saw them. He saw that they were desirable. He coveted them. He wanted them. And he took them. It wasn't his to take. But that's what we tend to do as sinful people apart from God's grace. We tend to take things that are not ours to take. Malachi, you can read in Malachi. He says something that shocked the people. Malachi was a prophet. He was speaking to the people who had been in exile and then come back from exile. They'd been reestablished in the land. And Malachi said, you're a bunch of thieves. You're robbing God. And the people said, get out of here. The Babylonians robbed the temple. The Assyrians robbed the temple. We would never, we would never walk to the back of the sanctuary at Emmanuel and crack into the offering box. We would never do that. We have never, have never, would never. And Malachi said, no, you're robbing him because you're bringing defective offerings. You're not bringing the full tithe to the storehouse. You're keeping it. You're not giving it. You're keeping it. You're holding on to it. Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts, sold a piece of land, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet, wanted the same recognition that Barnabas had received for laying the money that he had got from a sale of land at the apostles' feet. They wanted everyone to think highly of them like everyone thought highly of Barnabas. The problem is they lied and they kept back part of it. And the Lord killed them for their disobedience. We like to take and we like to keep. Now, greed's idolatry. And left to ourselves, we want to take from God and keep from God. The natural human way of thinking if you start with those truths that we, despite God being good and giving us things, we like to take from Him and we like to keep from Him. The way human beings think is we expect God to take and to keep from us. Because that's what we do. You wrong me, I'll wrong you. You take from me, I'll take from you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You talk bad about me, I'll talk bad about you. That's how... We think, left to ourselves in our sinful state. So you might expect that if we are keepers and takers, that God would do the same. Instead, what you find in the work of Jesus, you may have heard of this verse, God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't keep. He didn't take. But he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Reading that verse a few weeks ago made me think about what are some of the greatest gifts that have ever been given in the history of the world. You could think about yourself, maybe a Christmas when you were five and you got the exact thing that you wanted, a gift you always remembered. What are the greatest gifts in the history of the world? I hate to give credit to the French, but they gave us a Statue of Liberty and a lot of people know what that is and it's still standing. That's a pretty good gift. Statue of Liberty. It was a gift from the French. You ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? One of his wives was from Persia, Amidus, 
And legend says that she was so homesick for Persia or for Iran and the greenery and the plants and all the rest that he built the hanging gardens of Babylon as a gift for her. I don't know if it's true, but pretty good gift. This is a good one. In the year 1510, Portugal had a king named Manuel I. Roman Catholic Church had a pope named Pope Leo X. Do you know what Manuel gave Pope Leo? Anybody? He gave him a white elephant imported from India. It's the very first white elephant gift. You think I'm kidding. It's the very first white elephant gift. Straight from India to Portugal to the Vatican. I don't know. What do you do at the Vatican with a white elephant? I have no idea what they did with this white elephant. That's a pretty good gift. Joe DiMaggio, Marilyn Monroe. After she died, he sent her six roses three times a week, to her grave for 20 years as a gift. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You understand, He didn't just give Him to come hang out for three decades. But he gave him to die on a cross for sinners. Jesus gave his life as a ransom to deliver us from sin, from death, and from this present evil age. Many of you were here when we went through the Gospel of Luke. We talked every week for a couple of years about the theme verse of Luke, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The parallel verse, the theme verse for the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10.45. It says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give himself as a ransom. Let's read these verses from Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You can read in Galatians and the rest of the New Testament that the way he gave himself for our sins is that he died for our sins. Galatians 3 will say he was cursed for our sins. He became a curse for us on the cross. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Gave himself as a ransom to deliver us. He also gave us the Holy Spirit. We'll be brief here. Jesus gave his people the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives gifts uh, to his people. Gives his people gifts. 
Jesus talked about this in the upper room discourse. John 14 and 16 said that he would send another helper. It's a gift. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he gives us the gift of seeing the truth about Jesus. And he gives us spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. That shouldn't surprise us when the Holy Spirit shows up and gifts us. God did that in the beginning. Jesus did that in his life, his death, his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit does that for the church. It's a Trinitarian gift. The Father giving, it's the Son giving, it's the Spirit giving. So, we'll end with the how. We've talked about the why. We'll talk about the how. How do we train for giving? I have four points from 2 Corinthians, which we've read from earlier. And I have two from Jesus. This is not all that we could say, but these are biblical truths as you think about giving. Number one. We must give ourselves to God and to God's people before we give money. The longest passage in all of the Bible about giving, talking about giving money, is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's the longest extended discussion about giving. Look how it starts. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God's still giving. He's giving grace to the churches of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8 Five, they gave themselves first to the Lord. First they gave themselves to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, to us. First they gave themselves to the Lord. Then they gave themselves to God's people. Then they gave out of their billfolds and their wallets and their purses in their pocketbooks, in their checking accounts. First to the Lord, then to His people, then they gave financially. Giving money cannot, will not establish your relationship with God. You can't give enough to establish a relationship with God through your giving. God is the one who established a relationship with His people, by giving them grace, by giving them His Son, by giving them His Holy Spirit. First you give yourself to the Lord, then you give yourself to His people, and thirdly, you give. Second truth, our giving must be motivated by the gospel. Motivated by the gospel. Not by guilt, not because somebody pressured you, not because somebody made you feel rotten if you don't do it, not because... Somebody begged you and wouldn't stop, but it's got to be motivated by the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. I say this not as a command. It's not a command. It's not a have to. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's a beautiful summary of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's Jesus who was rich becoming poor so that you who are poor could become rich. That is the foundation, the motivation for giving. It's not a command. It's not a have to. But it's a response to what Jesus Christ has done. It's got to be motivated by the gospel. Number three, our giving ought to be planned and intentional. Planned and intentional. So what we're reading in 2 Corinthians Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he's talking about the churches of Macedonia. And the churches of Macedonia have been giving to an offering that Paul was collecting for the churches in Jerusalem where there was a massive famine. There was starving people, starving Christians, starving Jewish people. Paul's traveling all around to his churches, and he's asking them if they would give for the right reasons. Would you give to help these brothers and these sisters back in Jerusalem. And the churches in Macedonia had done it, and now he's asking the churches in Corinth to do it. And if you read this section, four times Paul talks about being ready. You need to be ready. I'm coming to town. There's going to be an offering. You need to be ready. Now we just read, he's not commanding them. He's not saying you have to. But he's also saying to them, you should be ready for this. You should be prepared for this. You should give thought and be intentional in this. Don't roll up to church the Sunday I roll into Corinth and say, well, what do I got left over? I, I don't know. I got five bucks here. Now, maybe five bucks is a huge sacrifice to give. And maybe you should be intentional and ready to give your five bucks. But for many Americans... Giving is just an afterthought. Oh, I'll give. What, what do I got left over? What, what do I have laying around? What's disposable? Rather than being intentional and being ready to give. Let's look at an example of this. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to read some verses that are probably familiar to most of you. And then we'll read a little bit further in the passage to verses that are usually not part of what we memorize. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 5, have you ever heard this? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Look at the very next verse. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. Not the leftovers. The first fruits. That's the same fundamental principle that Paul's telling the church in Corinth. Don't give the leftovers. Give the first fruits. Be intentional about this and be ready to give. He's not concerned about the amount, and he's not even giving a command. He's just talking about the way that Christians ought to honor the Lord with their wealth. They ought to give from the first fruits, not from the leftovers. So we're just going to pause right here. We have three more truths. We're just going to pause to talk about the word tithing. Because this always comes up in questions about giving and stewardship. We're going to talk about tithing. 
If you read in your Old Testament, the three main places that you will read about tithing, and the, the word tithe just means a 10%. The three places you'll read about this primarily. Number one is when Abraham goes to rescue Lot, and he comes back, and on the way back he meets with a guy named Melchizedek, which is a whole other sermon, and he gives him 10% of what he got in the military victory. Gives him a tithe. 10% of it goes to this guy named Melchizedek. Second primary place you'll read about this tithe is in the Mosaic Law. There are stipulations within the Law of Moses that God gave to Moses on Sinai and Moses gave to the people when he brought them out of Egypt and they're getting ready to go in the Promised Land that one of the things they were supposed to do was give a tithe. There's ideas of the first fruits. But I'll be honest with you, if you read the book of Leviticus and you add up all those offerings and all those sacrifices, guess what? It's way more than 10%. Way more. So this principle of a tithe shows up in the law, but the totality of what God asked from his people was actually way more than this 10%. Thirdly, you read about it in Malachi, which we referenced, where the exiles come back, and look, these are poor people who came back. Super poor. They had lost everything in the exile. They had made great sacrifice to travel from Babylon back to the promised land. They were there in Jerusalem. They didn't have a lot. They were offering as sacrifices the lamb that was born with three legs. We don't want that one anyways. Get rid of it. Leftovers. They were not being faithful in bringing what they were supposed to give. The amount in total was not the issue. The issue was that they were prone to keep and to take, and God wanted them to give. And so the prophet gives them an encouragement to give. Now, all of those verses are in the Old Testament, and you will not find any verses in the New Testament that stipulate clearly and without question a percentage that a Christian is supposed to give. And I'll be honest with you, I think most of the time Christians approach this question of a tithe completely wrong. And when they're thinking about this question of a tithe, what's going on in their head is, what is the smallest percentage I can give that God would be happy with? You don't ask, we don't ask it out loud like that, but that's what's really going on in our head. What's the lowest amount that I could give that would still be good? That's just the wrong approach. That's the approach that many teenagers are encouraged to take in their dating relationships when it comes to physical intimacy. How close, where do I cross the line? How close can I get to that line? When do I actually cross that line? Those are all the wrong questions for teenagers. You understand that? You agree with that? Let's just run away from the line in the other direction. Don't try to get right up to it. That's what we do often when it comes to giving. What's the smallest amount that God would be happy with, and that's the amount that I want to give. So what I'm telling you is there is not a number in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that I can lay out before you. I'm an accountant. I would love to give you a number. I'm a type A personality. It would give me great peace to have a number and to say, here it is. This is the number. This is what you ought to do. But I don't have the number. It's not there in the New Testament. I can give you just personal testimony, okay? Not New Testament chapter and verse. Personal testimony. One of the things I'm most thankful for in my parents and the way that they raised me, in particular my dad, 
is that he instilled in me the importance of tithing. And for a young 14, 15, 16-year-old boy who liked to get jobs and make money, as he instilled that in me, it was a 10%. There was a percentage attached to it. And he drilled that into me, and he modeled it to me. And even before then, when he took me to church, think about this for a second. I know the age group I'm talking to. When he took me to church, we did not roll into church. He did not pull out a dollar and give it to me so that I could put it in the offering. Does that teach a kid to give? That teaches a kid to give your money. That's easy. They can be the middleman. So he didn't give me money to give, but he showed me, this is what I'm giving. You know, I'm giving this much? Well, here's how I came to this amount. This is what 10% would be, but our church has also taken a world missions offering. I'm going to go over and above for that. And he explained it to me, and he walked me through that. And when I got a job, he never made me. He never said, this is a command. But he talked to me about it. How are you going to give off of that? Have you given thought to that? How are you going to approach it? I'm not bragging, because I didn't come up with this myself. I'm telling you, I'm fortunate to have a dad who taught me, when you have a job bussing tables at all the fixings in Amarillo, and they pay you your little piddly paycheck, what are you going to give to your church? Maybe it's five bucks. Maybe it's less than five bucks. But how are you going to think through that? We've tried to do that with our kids. Just a few nights ago, we pulled out old tax returns from the first couple years that we were married. And we just tried to explain to our kids We said, this is how much money your mom and I made the first year we were married. Guess what? It is a really small amount. Really, really small. Like less than, my wife's on the back row, I think it was like 7,000 bucks the first year, college students. Like nothing. But right there on the tax return, what did you give? Somebody instilled that in me. Paul's trying to instill that in the church in Corinth. We want to instill it in our people, whether they're youth upstairs, whether they're college back here, whether you're in this room. The idea of giving not leftovers, not at the last minute just seeing what you have, but giving in a planned way, in an intentional way. Okay, three more. We should be generous and cheerful in giving. Generous and cheerful. I can't give you a percentage, but I can give you generous. Straight out of 2 Corinthians. And cheerful. And if you're one of those people that tries to say, I'm not cheerful about it, so I'm not going to give, I'm just going to wait till I feel cheerful, and then I'll do the giving... Just, I want you to say that out loud and listen to yourself and think about the idea of disobeying God because of your emotions and your feelings, which we're also going to talk about Sunday. You can file that away. We'll come back to it Sunday morning, Psalm 119. Disobeying God because of your feelings rather than obeying God, walking by faith 
rather than by sight or rather than your gut in trusting God to change your feelings. One of the things that Paul tells the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you. If you're not cheerful, give and pray that God in His grace, His abounding grace, would make you a cheerful giver. Next, we should embrace the concept of stewardship. Stewardship. It's the parable of the talents that I gave you in Matthew 25. We don't have time to read it. I understand that the parable of talents is about more than money. It's not only about money. But I also understand that a talent in Jesus' day was money. The image used in the parable doesn't limit it to only being about money, but a talent was a measure of money, a denomination of money. And while it's about more than money, it's not about less than money. And when you embrace this idea of stewardship, you understand that all the money I have really isn't my money at all. It's actually God's money on loan to me, and someday I'm going to have to give an account for what I did with this money, just like all the other things that God gave you. But you're going to have to give an account for it. That's a stewardship mindset. A stewardship mindset does not approach giving with the way of, uh, the, the way of thinking that says, how much of my money am I going to give to God? But a stewardship mindset approaches giving, thinking, how much of God's money am I going to keep? And how much am I going to give back to him? It's a stewardship mindset. Last, quickly. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not in the Gospels, saying of Jesus, only found in the book of Acts, chapter 20. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not the American way, necessarily, but it is the ethic of Jesus. So let's pray together and we'll be done. God, we're grateful for the many things that you have given to us. Uh, you are a kind God in giving so much to your people, and we're thankful for that. Lord, not just your people, but you uh, give life to everyone, and you give rain uh, on all people, and you uh, pour out your blessings on, on folks all over the earth who are entirely, completely undeserving, and they don't thank you for what you've given to, given to them. So, Lord, we just want to stop and thank you for the many things you've given to us. Uh, above all, we're thankful that you gave us your son and that he gave his life to ransom us, to redeem us. We're grateful for Jesus giving us the Spirit, for the Spirit gifting us for the good of the church and the glory of Jesus. And God, when it comes to giving specifically of, of our money, uh, we pray that you would help us to think biblically about these things. Uh, we understand that uh, issuing commands is not uh, how the New Testament calls us to think about giving. Uh, but we pray that the truths we see in 2 Corinthians, and we pray that the truth that we hear from Jesus the truths that we read in 1 Timothy 6 would shape the way that we think about giving. Lord, we pray for our college kids who are 
wrestling with these truths, and we pray for our high schoolers and our middle schoolers, uh, and we pray that you would raise up uh, in this church a new generation of people who understand what it means to give. And God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people here. I thank you for the way that they give, the way that they support ministry at Emmanuel, the way that they give to missions, the way that they give to so many things that we set in front of them. Uh, Lord, we pray that your grace would abound to us more and more and that we would be giving people. Lord, we pray uh, that as we sing on our way out, uh, our hearts would be uh, focused on the truth about Jesus and that it would not just be a, a quick time of wrapping up a service and leaving, but uh, that we would worship from our hearts and we would give you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.